Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Diffusion Science Radio, the science program that brings you more science than there are stars in the sky, more science than there are grains of sand on the beach, and more science than there are versions of the old spice ad on the internet, and we had one of our own. My name is Mark West, and this week on Diffusion, we are featuring the psychiatry of forming budding relationships, and how close could you get to the sun before you melted? But first up, here's Victoria Bond with the news. An international study has discovered the reason why some people who eat high-fat diet remain slim, yet others pile on the weight. The study, led in Australia by the Monash Obesity and Diabetes Institute, or MODI, at Monash University, found a high-fat diet causes brain cells to become insulated from the body, preventing vital signs, which tell the body to stop eating and to burn energy, from reaching the brain efficiently. Australian Life Scientist of the Year, Professor Michael Cowley, said there were two clear outcomes from the findings. We discovered that a high-fat diet causes brain cells to become insulated from the body, rendering the cells unable to detect signals of fullness to stop eating. Secondly, the insulation also created a further complication in that the body was unable to detect signals to increase energy use and burn off calories or kilojoules. The research showed that support cells in the brain developed overgrowth in a high-fat diet. This prevented the regular brain cells from connecting with other neural mechanisms, which determine appetite and energy expenditure. The study findings provided a critical link in addressing the obesity epidemic. These neuronal circuits regulate eating behaviors and energy expenditure and are a naturally occurring process in the brain. The circuits begin to form early in life so that people may have a tendency towards obesity before they even eat their first meal. Eating a high-fat diet causes more insulation in nerve cells and makes it even harder for the brain to, to help a person lose weight. Obese people are not necessarily lacking in willpower. Their brains do not know how full or how much fat they have stored. So the brain does not tell the body to stop refueling. Subsequently, their body's ability to lose weight is significantly reduced. The study comprised of a period of four months during which the researchers monitored the eating and body consumption of a group of mice and rats and found that those with neural predisposition to obesity gained 30% more weight compared to 6% of the group with obesity-resistant cells. There may be a link between sunlight, vitamin D, and children's brain development. Researchers from the Queensland Brain Institute have found that babies born with low vitamin D levels are twice as likely to develop schizophrenia later in life. The good news from the study is that it suggests it may be possible to prevent schizophrenia, which affects up to 200,000 Australians. Professor John McGrath from the Queensland Brain Institute says there have been suggestions for some time that there may be a link between sunlight, vitamin D, and brain development, and that it is increasingly clear children with low vitamin D levels are more likely to develop schizophrenia. While the simplest way to get enough vitamin D is to spend more time in the sun, it remains unclear whether there are fewer cases of schizophrenia in a country like Australia, which sees a lot of sunlight, compared to a country like Denmark, which sees less sunlight. McGrath says, 
We don't have high-quality data on that, but some statistics suggest that we have slightly lower incidences and prevalences of schizophrenia. Like many other diseases, like many other diseases, such as multiple sclerosis, schizophrenia tends to be more common in places further away from the equator. And if you're born in winter and spring, you tend to have a slightly increased risk of schizophrenia also, which was one of the clues which led researchers to explore the vitamin D link. Professor Ian Hickey of the Brain and Mind Research Institute in Sydney said he is not surprised by these results. However, he does warn that more research is needed. The real acid test is going to be trying to lift the vitamin D levels in pregnant women and newborns and to see whether there's an effect on later schizophrenia, says Hickey. Or even, in fact, looking at providing higher levels of vitamin D by vitamin D supplementation in other ways later in life, particularly in childhood and teenage years, to see whether you might reduce the risk of onset of schizophrenia. He agrees there's only a statistical link at the moment, and that does not prove vitamin D deficiencies are to blame for schizophrenia. A predisposition to the illness can run in families, chemical imbalances in the brain may be responsible, and stressful events are often thought to play a role in the onset of schizophrenia. I remember when, I remember, I remember when I lost my mind. There was something so pleasant about that place. Even your emotions have an echo in so much space. Too much. Mm. Does that make me crazy? 
Victoria Bond, our roving medical reporter and star honours medical student, recently managed to corner her psychiatry professor, Anthony Harris, in a noisy hallway and grilled him about attachment theory and how on earth budding adults can form healthy relationships. Now take this all with a grain of salt because even if you know the theory behind a healthy relationship, that doesn't necessarily guarantee you one. So, uh, uh, well, my name's Anthony Harris, uh, and I'm an associate professor uh, of psychiatry at the Sydney Medical School, and I work out at, uh, at Westmead Hospital. Uh, so that's, that's who I am. So uh, the first question I have, I guess, is with relation of the theories within the realm of psychiatry, of the development of love and friendship and these relationships. Do, are, we, are we born with these relationships preformed in us, or...? That's a very interesting question, and it's one which psychiatry has been wrestling with for, uh, for uh, the hundreds of years that that's existed. We're, we're beginning to learn a lot more about uh, attachment and the importance of relationships. Uh, this has become this became very very important and was known to be very important through the 60s and 70s in the early observational studies of mothers and their babies. And, uh, Building upon the work of uh, people like uh, Freud and the, uh, and the object relationship theorists, people began to realise that from the very day that a baby is it's beginning to develop very important attachments to its mother in particular, but the other carers that are, are surrounding it. That is most graphically uh, pointed out uh, by the outcomes in uh, babies who are neglected. Uh, either in their own homes or in the orphanages. And I think we're all familiar with the uh, dreadful vacant stares of, of the young babies in the Romanian, uh, Romanian orphanages that were found at the end of the communist regime. So these were children that had been completely ignored for the duration of their childhood? And they, were, they were fed, uh, but that was about all. They were never touched, they were never picked up. And uh, that, uh, that emotional neglect not only had a, a huge toll from the point of view of their ability to form attachments and, and relate to other people, uh, those babies were half the weight of, uh, of normal babies. Uh, their brain development was hugely impaired. Mm. So not being in a loving relationship not only affects your ability to form your own relationships, but it also uh, materially affects your, your health, your, your body and your brain. Uh, in very basic ways. So we know that uh, a mother's touch, you know, that, that very important interaction between child and baby is very important. But we're also aware that there are many aspects of relations that are hard, hardwired into us to, to some extent. Uh, you know, humans are very much a community uh, animal. We, we live in societies, we live in small groups, and so many of those things uh, many of those those relationship uh, descriptors, I suppose, are, are very much part and parcel of how we are, and uh, they're often thought about as temperamental issues. So temperaments could be a temperament could be defined as a uh, as an innate part of one's personality, behaviour, or relationship style, which is biologically determined. Those temperamental uh, issues are, are, are with us from uh, from very early on, mm -hmm. and so uh, babies again can be can be grouped into those who are uh, who are grizzly and complaining, those who are happy, 
and uh, trusting, and those who are shy and avoidant in very, in very, uh, in very simplistic terms, and those personality uh, styles evident will carry forward into later problems such as anxiety or difficulty establishing relationships. So they're very basic uh, biological uh, uh, controlled aspects of our uh, of our ability to form relationships. Now, I'll be, I suppose I've been talking about uh, uh, what we might say about the very early parts of our uh, development and uh, the way that we develop attachments, uh, and they obviously interact. So one is not. Uh, determined merely by one's biology and one is certainly not merely determined by one's uh, environment. Uh, so you, we have to look at the, the play uh, between those aspects of ourselves. We're not thinking about uh, the broad, our broader ability to develop and, and form new relationships. Uh, there have of course been many different ways of looking at the long-term development of, of humans, of individuals. And uh, you, we were talking earlier about uh, what uh, Erickson uh, de uh, described, or Freud. Uh, many, there were many different ways of conceptualising the psychology of, uh, of further development. Uh, we can clearly see that uh, with development, uh, people uh, begin to try and uh, identify important elements of themselves, try to individuate uh, those important elements uh, separately from their immediate family and then try and build up a, uh, 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 their own relationships and their own, their own intimate relationships and then project their relationship through their community, whatever their community may be, in a, in a generative, in a, in a useful and, and uh, 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 profitable way. And different authors, Erickson or uh, George Valent, have looked at the, the development of the successful development of the individual over the ages uh, and seen how one of the basic ways in which you can define a, a well-lived life is by the quality of the relationships that that person has continued to, to have with uh, their own uh, intimate family as well as the, their broader community. Uh, and that concept of a well-lived life, be it from the ancient Greeks or from more modern uh, uh, happiness forums, is very much based upon how you how you uh, live your life with other people. And so, this I mean, this could really be uh, culturally um, influenced ideas. What? How do psychiatrists today define a well-lived life, or or a healthy friendship, or a healthy relationship? Well, uh, they are. Uh, some of the aspects of that are very much culturally determined uh, and it's very important when you're practicing psychiatry to keep that, uh, the, your patient's culture uh, in mind and if you don't know enough about it to find out something about it, uh, that, that the, your own patient and their family being a very useful uh, uh, source, primary source, uh, but there are certainly other avenues of doing that. But for, uh, for a, I think for a psychiatrist, uh, we really do get down to the quality of uh, the person's relationship, how, they, how well they love, how they play, and, and, and uh, how they work, how well they're able to work. So those aspects of work, play, and love, uh, as described by Sigmund Freud, are still very important ways of measuring the success of, of a life. Uh, 
uh, and uh, uh, often are the reasons that people come to see us and that they are they lose the ability to work, for instance, or their 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 important relationships have, have broken down, causing stress and depression uh, in their own in their own life. Professor Harris, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Professor Anthony Harris, helpfully giving us all a lesson on the theory behind relationships. L is for the way you look at me. O is for the only one I see. V is very, very extraordinary. E is even more than anyone that you adore. Can love is all that I can give to you. Love is more than just a game for two. Two in love can make it. Take my heart and please don't break it. Love was made for me and You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, www.diffusionradio.com, brought to you across the community radio network across Australia, across Sydney on 2SCR, and across the world on our podcast. You can check out our website at www.diffusionradio.com. Now, a little while ago, we put out a call for your burning science questions, and plenty of great questions came in. Now, we apologise for the delay in answering many of these questions, but we answered a few a while back in Science Week. And now that Subscriber Drive is over, we're finally coming to some of the ones that we didn't get to. Now, one interesting question that came in was, how close could an average spaceship get to the sun before melting? And here is an answer from a much more intelligent person than I, physics PhD holder and all-round good bloke, and one of my most excellent colleagues, Dr David Boffinger. He says, 
An old-fashioned spaceship would probably be made of aluminium. A more modern one might be made of a mixture of aluminium, graphite, fibre and polycyanate. Assuming you want the spaceship to actually melt rather than just fall to bits because a few bits melted, then you probably want to raise it to the melting point of aluminium, which is 933 Kelvin. Of course it will take a lot less than that to kill any crew and cook any electronics on the ship, but melt you ask for, and melt we shall give. We'll assume for the moment that the spaceship is a simple sphere and that we haven't done anything clever to keep the spaceship cool. It will heat up to a temperature such that it's radiating away as fast as it's absorbing heat from the sun. The closer it gets to the sun, the more it absorbs, and the more it needs to radiate, so the higher its temperature will get. If we put it in orbit around the Earth, then it's about 150 million kilometres from the sun, and the temperature it reaches is 279 Kelvin, i.e. about 6 degrees centigrade. Earth is mostly warmer than this because of the greenhouse gases in its atmosphere. To melt the aluminium in the spaceship, we need to take it to 13 million kilometres, about a twelfth of the distance from the Earth and four times closer than Mercury. Of course, there's all sorts of tricks we can play to get closer. We can make the spaceship silvery on the side facing the Sun and black on the side facing space. That will make it absorb less and radiate more. If we made it as white as snow on the Sun side and black as coal on the space side, then we could get in as close as 6 million kilometres, about 8 times closer than Mercury and 25 times closer than Earth. If we made the spaceship long and thin and pointed it towards the Sun, we could maximise our ability to dump heat compared with how much we absorb. That might get us a little closer. If we pull out all stops, we might do as well as NASA's planned solar probe, which intends approaching within 6.6 .6 million kilometres of the Sun, while staying cool enough to have functional electronics and cameras. The moral is that if you want to go close to the Sun, you don't want an average spaceship, but something built to take the heat. Fantastic answer there, David. And if you have an alternate opinion, we'd love to hear it. You can get in contact with us at diffusion at 2scr.com. The sun is a mass of incandescent gas, a gigantic nuclear furnace, where hydrogen is built into helium at a temperature of millions of degrees. Yo-ho, it's hot. The sun is not a place where we could live. But here on Earth there'd be no life without the light it gives. We need its light, we need its heat, we need its energy. Without the sun, without a doubt, there'd be no you and me. The sun is a mass of incandescent gas, a gigantic nuclear furnace, where hydrogen is built into helium at a temperature of millions of degrees. The sun is hot. It is so hot that everything on it is a gas, iron, copper, aluminum, and many others. The sun is large. If the sun were hollow, a million Earths could fit inside, and yet the sun is only a middle-sized star. The sun is far away, about 93 million miles away, and that's why it looks so small. 
And even when it's out of sight, the sun shines night and day. The sun gives heat, the sun gives light, the sunlight that we see. The sunlight comes from our own sun's atomic energy. Scientists have found that the sun is a huge atom-smashing machine. The heat and light of the sun come from the nuclear reactions of hydrogen, carbon, nitrogen, and helium. The sun is a mass of incandescent gas, a gigantic nuclear furnace, where hydrogen is built into helium at a temperature of millions of degrees. And unfortunately, that's all the time we've got in this week's edition of the Diffusion Science Radio Show. My name is Mark West, and this week's show was produced by Victoria Bond, who was the other voice you heard on today's show. If you'd like any more information about today's show or any show we've had in the past, get over to our website at www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion is broadcast out of the studios of 2SCR 107.3 in Ultimo, Sydney, and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you'd like to get in contact with us, if you've got any stories or any questions, or indeed you want to volunteer for the show, our email is diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Thanks very much for joining us wherever you are in the world. We hope you join us again next week on the Diffusion Science Radio Show.